Go ahead and take a seat. Get comfortable. <laughs> Hi, everybody. My name is Josh Rice. I'm uh, on the preaching team here at Outward Church. Um, and uh, Lord willing, on May 5th, my family and I will head to Japan to be uh, Outward's first supported missionaries. So that's exciting. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's exciting. There you go. So today, uh, I actually want to talk about regret. And it's tough to talk about regret when it's so beautiful outside, like spring is here. I don't mind you guys, but I love baseball, so it's like baseball season, and, and now that Russell Wilson is gone, and now the, the Seahawks are shedding everything, it's kind of like, well, I'm going to have to be excited about baseball season, I guess. So this is all I got left. Anyways, um, one of my regrets was back in 2018, my wife and I were going on uh, an anniversary together, and at the time I was teaching at Corbin, and so we left our two kids with uh, my in-laws, and we drove up to watch a Mariners-Cardinals game, and we spent 10 years in the Midwest, so the Cardinals kind of became, my, they're really my favorite team now. Uh, just to be honest, I grew up in Seattle watching the Mariners, but they've been so bad for so long, you guys. It was very easy when we got there in 2009 to get caught up in the Cardinals, their playoff run in 11 or 12, whatever it was, so like, I kind of just watched both teams. Anyways, I, it was going to be a Cardinals-Mariners game in Safeco Field. I was so excited. The day before we left for our anniversary trip, I changed the brakes on our car, our old Ford Escape, and I apparently forgot to tighten one of the bolts on the caliper to tighten it to the, the, the uh, disc brake. And uh, when we got to the stadium, as we're pulling into the parking lot, I heard this... <laughs> This whole, yeah, it's probably like terrible through the speakers. It was terrible, so that's real. This grating sound, and I don't know what it is. I, I, I get down and see that the caliper's hanging forward, and so as I'm driving, it's scraping the brake. And so it's like, well, apparently this is what we're doing this evening. So I missed the game. I had to walk because we couldn't drive the car, so I walked a mile because it was downtown Seattle. I walked a mile to the nearest um, uh, you know, hardware store and bought like five bolts, tried different ones, and basically it, I, I ended up spending uh, the next... 20 hours fixing the car in a garage in downtown Seattle instead of spending my anniversary. That's a regret. <laughs> That's a bummer, right? I also have a regret. Since I'm thinking about baseball, why, why does baseball fill me with so many regrets? I, I was reading a, a couple years ago when the Cardinals uh, made it to the postseason and lost the very first wild card round. Uh, one of the guys I follow on Twitter said, the reason why we're in love with baseball is it doesn't break your heart. And there's something about that. You don't regret things unless they matter, right? When I was in ninth grade, I was just under 5'1", weighed about 90 pounds. I had pretty soft hands. I could play shortstop and second well. But when I was in the box, when it was time to bat, oh, I had no power, nothing. I was starting to learn to pull the ball, and I'd get it just outside the infield and be like, that's everything I got. It would be, you know, 75 feet. That's it. It was, just, it was bad. So I gave up after ninth grade. I figured 10th grade, nah, forget it. I'm not going to play this year. And over the next uh, year and a half, I grew like four and a half inches and gained a little weight. And I was like, well, probably should have stuck with it. That's a regret I have. Now, I don't want to just talk about me and baseball. I'm talking about regret because regret is something we all experience. And I think that regret is some of the things that these men are feeling as they're walking on the road to Emmaus. Where's Jesus' body? Did we back the wrong horse? 
Are the authorities going to come get us? Have any prophecies come true? These men have spent a year staking their life on Jesus being the promised one. And now they're kind of saying, I don't know if the evidence is there to support this. Did I just get myself in a lot of trouble for no good reason? That's a real question they might have. Now, my argument for the day, for us, is going to be that Jesus meets us on the road. So my title for the sermon is Meeting Jesus on the Road. And here's the the point I want us to see today. Jesus meets us where we are on our road. He shows us where we're going in the scriptures. And he's going to stay with us on the way in communion with him and with each other. So I want you to get the, the, the picture here where we're going. I'm talking about the road, the trail, the path that leads to Jesus. If you're wondering, am I on the road? I'm going to give you a test to find out if you are. If you're wondering, how do I stay on the road? I'm going to talk about that. And I also want to end with the destination. Where are we going on this road? The road with Jesus, the road to Jesus. There's a spoiler, but you knew that was coming. Let me pray real quick. Dear Jesus, would you make it clear from this scripture that you walk with us? We've never been alone. We so often feel alone, and we feel like that we've messed up, that we, there's things we regret, things that we've failed at. But the scripture shows that you walk right up to us, right where we are, and engage with us in kind and gentle conversation. You're such a kind Lord. God, would we see you clearly in the scripture? Would we have hope and joy because you are who you said you were? You accomplish what you said you would, and we can live in the light of that. Help us see that today in this passage. Amen. So let's start at the beginning. Um, if we look at Luke and Matthew and Mark and John, they all, all the Gospels have slightly different ways they kind of frame the last, uh, you know, the, the end of the book, the way they frame Jesus' resurrection. Um, I spent some time last night trying to parse exactly when this happens. My best reading is this the Sabbath day of the resurrection. At this point, Jesus has not appeared to the disciples, but he has appeared to the women. And Peter and John have run into the tomb and been, well, actually John runs up, but doesn't go inside. Peter goes inside. But as of yet, the disciples together have not seen Jesus. And there's two of them, it says on the road. That very day, two of them, the apostles, were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. Now, uh, talking, Jesus is going to actually tell us that they're debating. <laughs> Jesus says in the next verse, while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him, him, and he said to them, what is this conversation you're holding with each other? He actually says, what's this debate you're having? So this is not a polite conversation. This is somewhat heated. They're debating what to do. Like, what's our next move? Here's a question. Why are they going to Emmaus? All the other disciples are in Jerusalem. Are these two leaving because they want to get out of Dodge? After all, your leader just got killed. The Romans tend to not be, the Romans don't have the innocent until proven guilty principle, right? They're like, you hang out with the guy we killed, well, why not you too? You know, in for one, in for a bunch, right? So, are these guys running away? We actually, it doesn't tell us why they're going there, but the rest of the disciples aren't there. At this time of need, they're leaving the group? So, I don't think it's irrational to say, 
It's possible. They were just like, let's go just outside of Jerusalem and wait and see what happens. It's seven miles off. We can get back into town if we need to, but let's just wait and see what happens. So I, 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 I want to be careful not over-speculating, but I don't think it's wrong to say there's a good chance they really wanted to be out of Jerusalem because they weren't really sure what was going to happen next. I think they're afraid. I think they got some regret about the last year and a half they've been with Jesus. Also, Luke, Luke's, Luke is a, a, he wrote both Luke and Acts. Luke's a doctor, and he likes to play with words. When he, he says all these things that had happened, the word had happened in, in Greek actually means the things that have walked alongside. So what's funny is he's, who's going to walk alongside is Jesus, and he's saying, what just happened? What's been walking along with you this whole time? So if he's just, Luke's just trying, if you're, if you're reading and paying attention, he's trying to hint, guess what's happening? He wants us to follow with him, okay? He's trying to lead us. Then, as they're debating, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Why? Why don't they know who this man is? They've been with him for a year and a half. I think this actually tells us something, guys, about the resurrection. That when a resurrection happens to Jesus, in some ways, he's like he was, right? They will recognize him. But there's something about him so different that as they're walking and talking, they have no idea who this man is. So this is my first like, encouragement. The resurrection does something to you, something miraculous, that in some ways you're just like you've always been, and in some sense you're so new that the people you know and love won't know what's happening to you the first time Jesus starts changing your heart. That's my encouragement. If you haven't felt that, then you don't know Jesus, because Jesus only shows up to turn everything upside down in your heart. He doesn't show up and nibble at the edges. That's not our Lord's way. But also notice, this Lord who overturns tables, who yells at people to get out when they're wrong, he's also gentle. You hear him? What is this conversation you're having? <laughs> he walks up, what you talking about? I, like, you should, you should chuckle, not because I'm funny, but because the scripture's funny. Deliberately here, he just walks up and says, hey, what are y'all you, you talking about? He's gets conversational. Notice what happens. This is how sad they're feeling. They're, they're walking. I heard this from Tim Keller. I hadn't noticed this before. When he says, what are you talking about? They stood still looking sad. When he says, how, what are you talking about? They just freeze in the middle of the journey. How do we, how do we talk with this guy? What do you want? Do we to, how are we going to break the new? Think about the complexity of their feelings right now. Who is this guy walking with them? Is he an informant? Do we tell them we know this Jesus? Is he a fellow or would-be disciple? Does he know what's happening with Jesus' body? Like, there's a lot of possibilities of who this guy could be. And Cleopas answers in verse 18, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? So he's like, before I tell you what's going on, like, where have you been? Have you been living under a rock? Like, everyone knows what's going on in Jerusalem. Like, Herod's there. Like, important people are in town. There's been crowds and mobs. Like, where have you been? You're on the road leaving Jerusalem. Don't you know what's going on? <laughs> and Jesus, again, guys, we don't read Scripture with enough calm. I really believe this. And he said to them, what things? <laughs> Jesus is like, yeah, tell me. I'm, I'm curious. What, what, what happened? They said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. 
Now, the phrase they use, mighty in deed and word, that's the same phrase in Acts 7 about Stephen the martyr. What is he like? He's a man mighty in word and deed. So Luke is giving us a hint. The prophecy and the power that Jesus had is going to be seen in the martyrdom of Stephen. I would extend that and say the power of Jesus can be seen in all of us because we're empowered by the Holy Spirit. But there's just a little, little nod there. And, how, so, and notice where Cleopas puts himself. There's some debate about who Cleopas is because he's not one of, the, one of the 12, but he clearly is aware of these things. But he says, our chief priests and rulers. So despite a name like Cleopas, which sounds Greek, he's definitely Jewish because he says our rulers, not their rulers, the Jews' rulers, our rulers. Our people put this one to death. Verse 21, Cleopas takes a big step of faith. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. I think that verse is a verse about salvation. Cleopas doesn't know where the body is. He doesn't know what happened, but he just, is, is, he just admits this one guy. I really thought that this one Jesus was the one we've been waiting for. This is a man who has just admitted to some stranger a thing that could maybe get him hung, a thing that could maybe get him crucified for admitting it. Now, these men are still full of regret and sadness. That's why they stop in their, in their journey to talk with this traveler that's appeared next to them. So here's the first thing I want you to see today. When Jesus meets us on the road, he knows that we're full of doubt and half-faith, half-trust. Cleopas will go far enough to say, I'd hoped, but he won't actually say, I know, or he's risen. He just said, I really wanted it to be true. If that's where you're at this morning, Jesus is on your road. If you're just hoping that this is true, that's enough. The, the doors to salvation are so wide that the person who limps in gets in all the way, you guys. So this is the first bit of real good news I want you to see. All Cleopas has is a hope. What does Paul tell us about hopes? Hopes will not be disappointed if they're in Christ. You follow me? So this is the first bit of good news we can see right here, is that Cleopas doesn't know what's going on. Maybe you guys remember from taking you know, English in high school. This is what we call dramatic irony, right? The readers, the watchers of the play, us readers of the text, we know what's happening. We know who Jesus is, where he is. Cleopas doesn't. But he's able to step in just enough faith and say, man, I'd hoped. Yes, and besides all this, here the hope's starting to grow. It is now the third day since these things happened. The only reason to mention three days is because Jesus said in three days, I'm rebuilding this temple. So, are you guys feeling the growth of the faith in this man's heart? At first, he didn't want, first he says, are you not from around here? And they says, well, I'd hoped. And then he says, the body's gone. It's been three days. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. Actually, the word amazed, it's, it's literally outside ourselves, like, you know, outside your head. It means it's crazy. That's actually what he means. They drove us nuts. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they'd even seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. So now Cleopas is even saying, I, I'm telling you that I have hope for it. There's no body there. It's been three days, and the women saw some crazy things. The angels said he's alive. 
Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him, Jesus, they did not see. So the first thing we see here is Cleopas goes in the space of this you know, 30 minutes, 30 you know, seconds of conversation from not wanting to reveal his cards, trying to be careful who the stranger is, to saying, I, don't, I can't put my finger on it. I don't think it's possible that a Messiah could die, but like, where's the body? And the angels were there and I don't know. What does this mean? That sort of faith will get you to enjoy Jesus forever in heaven. If all you have is, what does this mean? Can this be true? That will get you there. Another thing I must say about the road. If you feel like you've been off the road for a long time, Jesus doesn't let people leave the road. He keeps pulling them back. If you've ever been on the road, you can't get off it because Jesus is too zealous for you. You know, I don't know why I'm going there now, but the word zeal in the Bible, uh, kina in Hebrew, it actually means jealousness. So whenever you read zeal, you should actually hear jealousy. The Bible says that God is a jealous God. He is always after his people. So if you feel like you've wandered from God for a year or 10 or 55, Jesus' zeal, his jealousness of your affections, his desire to have your heart is still there. There's no too late in Jesus Christ. There's always right now. This is the day of salvation. So that's the good news also is that just like these men are doubting and full of regret and fear and all Cleopas has is, I was really hoping and I, I can't make sense of the evidence in front of me. We're going to see Cleopas in glory. I want to I ask him some questions. Who did he look like? like I, I got to ask Cleopas what it was like to be there in that moment when this guy just shows up and starts, hey, what's going on? I want to know what that was like in more detail. Jesus responds. Here's our next point. We saw the road. Let's look at the road map. And Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. The slow of heart, slow of heart to believe, um, it's literally saying um, slow to be convinced. Slow to make the switch to buy into it. Uh, it's credo in, in the Latin. There's, there's this failure to commit to what's true. Was it not necessary, Jesus says, that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his doxa, his glory? That's a really fascinating phrase, isn't it? The scriptures are, are full about prophecies about the Messiah, but most of them are about the judge, right? He comes to destroy the wicked, to break the teeth of those who oppose God's holiness, right? And Jesus refocuses what they're thinking about and says, shouldn't the Christ have to suffer to enter into his glory? The problem with the disciples, again, if you guys have been in church for a while, you probably know this, they thought they needed a military leader, someone to overthrow the Romans. That doesn't work if he's dead. Jesus knows their problem is still that they're looking for the hero who will kick Rome out, make Israel an independent kingdom. That's what they're still looking for. And so he reframes the thing and says, wait a second, do you know what had to happen to the Messiah? Are you thinking about what had to happen to him? Verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, I want to sit on this for a little bit. 
what does Jesus tell them that makes the scriptures come alive? What is it that he's going to talk about that makes them say, oh, of course. Jesus is the center of scripture. The Bible tells us Jesus is the center of everything. So when you're reading scripture, when you're in the Old Testament, you should always, 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 always be looking for Jesus. If you're not, you are not reading it properly. I'm like really clear with that. There's a classic debate amongst scholars, which drives me crazy, about how much Jesus do you see in the Old Testament? Should we wait to see if a New Testament verse quotes it? or Stop it. That's terrible. Don't listen to those people. Every time you think you see Jesus in the Old Testament, you're right, because he is behind everything in the universe. Let me push the point here. I think I used this example uh, a couple months ago when we were talking about, oh, now I'm forgetting which, what, what the sermon was about. <laughs> I mentioned Jesus. He's the rock at Horeb, stricken. The water flows and keeps the people alive. That's Jesus. Let me give you another one. I just picked this one because they're on the road, so bear with me. This is Isaiah 19. Now, to give you context, in Isaiah, we've just had a couple chapters talking about Assyria. They're going to get their butts kicked. God's going to waste them. Assyria's going to be desolated. Egypt's going to be destroyed. They're going to weep. They're going to be just wrecked. Look at Isaiah 19, 19. And that day, (laughs) there will be an altar to the Lord in the middle of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord at its border. So does, like, Israel take over Egypt? It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. When they cry to the Lord because of oppressors, wait, who's oppressing Egypt? He will send them a savior and defender and deliver them. Wait, that's what God does for Israel. Are you telling me that God is going to save Egypt from the oppressor? He, uh, and the Lord, verse 21, and the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians, and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day, and worship with sacrifice and offerings, and they will make vows to the Lord and perform them. The whole Testament is the Israelites not fulfilling their oaths, right? Disobeying God, not carrying through their promise. And Isaiah 19 says, the Egyptians will make God a promise and they'll do it. What on earth does this mean? Verse 22, And the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing, and they will return to the Lord. Return to the Lord? When were they ever from him? You guys getting the thread I'm going at here? How can you make enemies of God be his people? Hearing the echo? And he will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. The end. I love the end. Here's the road. In that day, this is, I, I read, I was reading through Isaiah um, a couple, oh, I guess four, four or five years ago now, and I just, man, I just was crushed by this verse. It's so amazing. In that day, I can almost hear like Isaiah shouting as he's giving this prophecy. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt, I guess from your perspective, Egypt to Assyria. And Assyria will come into Egypt, and Egypt into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. And that day Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria. What? When God shows up and makes all things right, Israel's only a third. Two-thirds of the people who will be God's people are Egypt and Assyria, the sworn enemies of God. You see the power of this? This is about Jesus, because he makes enemies his friends. 
okay? I'll close it, then we'll, move, then we'll move on to see a couple other examples. In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing. Remember, what was Abraham told he'd become? You'll be a blessing to all people. And now who's going to be a blessing? Egypt and Assyria are going to be a blessing for the peoples of the earth. Whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, what a triplet. Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, Israel, my inheritance. There's a poem here about each of these three people and how they're gods. When you read the Old Testament, look for Jesus, because this right here is a prophecy that if we hadn't been like those disciples, we'd know the only way you can make enemies is friends is if you find a way to kill the enmity, to kill the anger, to destroy the separation. And we know that's exactly what Christ did for us, didn't he? I could use more examples. When Jonah's in the whale, it's figurative of Jesus in the earth. And if you really want to get into it, we can even talk about what it means when we say in the creed, he descended to hell. Come talk to me after if you want to debate that. But the point is that Jonah's an image of where Jesus had to go. How about Abraham? When Abraham makes a covenant with God and the animals are cut into, you know, killed. Can you imagine cutting a cow into? Cutting a, like, that's a really, amongst ways to kill animals, that's disgusting. And you have to walk between them. Does Abraham ever walk between the slaughtered animals? No, God does. Are you hearing the threads? Every time in the Old Testament you think you see something, if you see Jesus, you're seeing rightly. Okay? I want to make that point really clear. That's why Jesus, let's go back to our passage, that's why Jesus says, have you been reading? Have you been paying attention? It's all in there. Because all of the scriptures are about him. That's what verse 27 says. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So everything's about Jesus. All of the scriptures about Jesus. Let me, let, me, let me push even broader than that. Art can't happen without beauty and truth. Like, I think, I think whether we're talking paintings or, or like a really good novel or a film that's fascinating, art requires that things are beautiful and that they catch our gaze. Who's the source of all beauty in the universe? Hebrews says that Jesus is the brightness of God. Like the, the, the here's, a, here's a $5 word, the fulgence of God, the shining brilliance is Jesus Christ. So when you see something beautiful, you are seeing an author or a painter stealing, redisplaying something that's God's. Okay? How about truth? When we, you know, uh, last week Tim talked about Zelensky. When we see justice happening, boy, how often does justice happen in our world? It's so rare. But when we see it, aren't we excited when actually the wicked are punished? When the, when, when the man who's put in jail wrongly is released? We're cheered by that. Why? Because justice is a, care, is, a, is a part of God's character. It's from him. It's from Jesus. Am I beating a dead horse? Are you guys getting me here? I want you to see everything comes from Jesus. So that's why that's how we read the scriptures. I want to add one more thing here. Just throw this out. Have you ever considered the fact that Jesus' main... How should I put this? 
Have you ever considered that the main way Jesus tries to extol and encourage the disciples is believing? Why is that? Think about this for a second. Muhammad says, obey Allah, and that's the way to righteousness. Obedience is the key, right? Buddha doesn't say follow him. He says, you need to seek enlightenment. You have to, be, you have to escape from the cycle of suffering and inappropriate wants. There's the thing you got to do. Jesus' message to these men on the road who are depressed and full of regret is, look for me. Muhammad says, obey. Buddha says, get free. Jesus says, look, do you see me? Like, that's our Savior. Jesus is so Jesus-centric. Ever thought about that? There's no one. We should stop reading this right now if Jesus is not God because he won't shut up about himself. You with me? He's always talking. He's saying, do you know the Son of Man? Do you know who he is? He's always saying, do you know the guy? We're going to see that they recognize this man. Stay with me. So they're talking. They're having this great conversation. I'd like to see how the tenor of that conversation changed from this debate, argument, these depressed guys talking about their regrets. What does this mean? What do we do? To then just like their jaws hanging probably two feet off their mouth listening to Jesus connect every story in the Old Testament to himself. So they drew near to the village to Emmaus where they were going. He acted as if he were going farther. Did that remind you of any other stories? Remember when Jesus was walking on the water during the storm? It says he was walking as if to go by them. <laughs> I, I do not, God is so funny. I don't know what else was Jesus doing because he was going to save them. Where else was he going? Anyway, it says, I don't know why scripture includes that detail, but he intimates he's going to keep going. But they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us, for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. They say, please stick around. They want to hear more. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them, and their eyes were opened. Um, it's not often I quote Catholic theologians here, but John Paul II absolutely rightly says, they begged Jesus to stay, and he gave them a meal. That's my paraphrase. It's exactly right. If you're begging Jesus to stay with you, he's created a practice for us as the church, so every Sunday we're reminded he hasn't gone anywhere. Why do they recognize him when the bread is broken? Because Jesus' body was broken for us. You guys getting all the threads here? The Bible's so rich. That actually, the word um, at the, the end of the passage, they, they, uh, verse 35, when they told him what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread, it, it's klau, means fracture. They see the bread crushed and they say, I know who that happened to. That's the power of the broken bread is you realize, I know what that happened to. I know who it happened to, and it happened for me. That's the hope of salvation. Let me keep going here. Our eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. Verse 32, this is my prayer for you and for me. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures. The word open there, dianoigo, it's actually the same word. When it says they recognized him, their eyes, sorry, when it says their eyes were opened and he opened the scriptures, it's the same word and it literally means to break open. I, I, want, the, I want the translation here to be more active. Their eyes, 
just the, 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 the things that keep them from seeing Jesus are broken open. The scriptures that were closed, concealed, hidden are opened up so everyone can read and see they're about Jesus. There's a liberation happening here. Are you with me? Their eyes are liberated. They can see the one. And now when they read scripture, they're liberated to read it rightly. I want to talk about verse 32 a little more. Did not our hearts burn within us? Now, look at the difference between regret and this. When you regret, you're saying, I wish I could go back. I want to do something different. Now, these are men who have a good reason to be regretful. Why didn't I ask Jesus X or Y hard question while we're walking on the road? I missed my chance, but that's not their attitude. They're just saying, can you believe what just happened? Can you remember how you felt when he was opening the scriptures to us, when he's breaking open our vision so we could see? The power of the gospel is it crushes your regrets. Do you have regrets? I know I do. And the power of Jesus' resurrection is it crushes the things that hold you down. Because they don't say, if only I'd use my time differently, they say, do you know what he did for us? Do you know what I understand now? The power of Jesus is he destroys the things we think about what we've done because we think about what he has done. That's the power of the gospel. What do they do? It's late in the evening. We know because they get there late, they tell Jesus, stick around because it's late. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. So they're running probably near the middle of the night. And they found the eleven, those who, had, who were with them gathered together, saying, the Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. So Whatever happens, this experience has changed them so much that these men who fled Jerusalem, lest they be associated with Jesus, now run back into town to tell everybody they just saw him. These are men that have met something so powerful, they're not afraid of death anymore. These are fearless men. I want to see something really beautiful. Verse 33, and they rose. The, the word, and they rose, is most often used when Jesus like raises the little girl from death. It's the same word. It says literally, like in some sense, they got up, but it's actually saying they got resurrected and ran into town. Do you love that image? These are men who are dead and they don't know what's going on and they're frustrated and they're full of regret and fear and now they're resurrected, brand new, running back into town. That's the power of the gospel for you and me today. We're going to have the Eucharist communion in a little bit. Boy, I've been talking a lot about communion the last couple months. Oh, the Lord's picked that for me, I guess, for some reason. I think one of the things that's so beautiful about the things that Jesus picks for us, why did Jesus pick breaking bread? Yeah, I'll, I'll call you guys down in a second. We're, we're almost there. Why did Jesus pick breaking bread as a sign? There's, there's lots of reasons theologians have put forward. Because breaking bread is something we do every day. We always need to eat. Because bread is an everyday thing and we need Jesus every day. I mean, there's all sorts of directions we could go with this. That's not my, my point. 
But what I want you to see here is that the disciples respond to seeing Jesus' sacrifice by running to tell each other about who Jesus is and what he's done. That's the entire story of the church. Do you know that? The whole story of the church is people who have had their eyes broken open to see Jesus telling other people about the Jesus they've seen. That's the entire story of the Christian church the last 2,000 years. Like the historian in me, there's so much that's changed in the world. Uh, boy, a thousand years ago, crop rotation did not exist. Uh, the, the idea of having two people sing in harmony, do you know how new that is? The, we believe the French probably invented polyphonic singing in the 1350s. There was a time when people didn't know you could harmonize, like you might have done it accidentally, but no one wrote it down, no one talked about it. Are you tracking with me? This book includes promises that are 2,000 years old because they keep working. This book is going to outlast everything in here. The scripture says, right, that a whole earth is going to age and be shaken out like an old musty garment. This thing's never getting old. It's always fresh because the power of Jesus, when we're gathered, breaking bread together, is experiencing something as new and vibrant as they experienced on the road. So here's my closing promise to you. If you're not sure, if you're on the road, and you're just wondering or hoping, brother, sister, you're already on the road. You didn't put yourself there. Jesus has been wooing you. If you've been ignoring, not listening, heck, if you've been having a hard time hearing him, maybe you're hearing right now, Today is the day of salvation because Jesus has never stopped walking by you. They beg him, would you stay with us? And when they see the bread, they know. That's our promise. A band, go ahead and come on up. We're going to take, a, we'll take the elements. We're going to take them together. So uh, please come up and uh, take the Eucharist, then go back to your seats if you don't mind. Thank you, sir. There's another story of someone who meets Jesus on a road. It's a story in Acts 8. Maybe you know it. 
that's an Ethiopian eunuch, is riding on his chariot, and it says that the Spirit told Philip, one of the disciples, to go down to the road. It's another road connecting to Jerusalem. In both cases, you have the disciples who are in Jerusalem, and they get out because they're afraid, and you have the eunuch who went to worship, and now he's leaving. He's a eunuch. He can't go into the central courts. He's excluded from full communion like the people of God have. And he's reading the scroll of Isaiah. He's reading Isaiah 53. And Philip walks on up to this chariot. And they start talking. And Philip says, uh, they start talking about what he's reading. And the eunuch says, I can't understand it. What is it all about? Does that sound familiar? Because he's looking at the scriptures, but he's not using the right lens. And so Philip tells him, beginning with this scripture... He told, them the, he told him the good news about Jesus. So just like Jesus starts with Moses and the prophets and says, if you look there, it's all about me, Philip does the exact same thing. And what does the eunuch do? He's going to get in the water. He's going to get baptized because he says, that's what I need. You want to know three chapters after where he's reading what it says? I believe that Philip just kept reading the scroll of Isaiah because here's what he would read in three chapters. To the eunuchs, those who are excluded, who can't come in for communion. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I'll give them an everlasting name that shall never be cut off. Do you imagine the eunuch's joy when he hears that this Jesus, the crucified one, would make him an outsider, have the highest hope? that his name would be included in the temple of the Most High. Friends, this is his body. When we take it together, we experience him, and we experience him in each other. Let's partake together. And when they came up out of the water... The Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more. <laughs> just like Jesus just disappeared. And the eunuch went on his way rejoicing. If you've experienced and seen Jesus, it will fill you with great and unstoppable joy. His joy will crush your fear and regrets and your weaknesses. They don't stand a chance against his doxa, his great glory and beauty. Friends, if you believe that's true, and if you're like Cleopas, and you're just hoping it's true, drink up. You're right where you need to be. Jesus, would you strengthen us, your people, with hope? Would you destroy our doubts and our half-faiths and our partial trusts and give us the abiding joy that comes from knowing you have never left our side. You've always walked with us. You have gotten the mud and dirt of our sufferings and difficulties on your feet so you could be our friend. Every leaf of scripture is about you. Every blade of grass and sunshine is about you. God, keep us on the road. Would you open up the scriptures to us so when we read, we find life. Thank you, God, that we cannot 
flee your road if you've set your love on us. Your love is too strong to let us die in our sins. It can only make us like yourself. If we're full of regret, if we're coming back to the road after a long time away, God, I pray you would give us the sudden and abiding joy of knowing that Jesus died for us, he was raised for us, and he lives in us right now, what Paul calls the hope of glory. Will that move us more than any of the things that hold us back? Thank you, Jesus, for who you are, for what you've done. Give us just that little bit of Cleopas hope to cling on to it. Amen.